Hello and welcome to Peach Pot, a Georgia politics podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes and I am your host and we are back after a little bit of a break. Uh, I am joined as always by my good friend Luke Boggs. Luke, how is law school treating you these days? Uh, I'm still alive. That, that's, that's all it needs to be said. That sounds like an accomplishment. Yes. Um, and then we have a we have a full house here today. We're also joined by Austin Wagner. Austin, how are you? I'm doing all right and reminiscing on my 1L years and being alive is an accomplishment. And I'm reminiscing on the fact that I never put myself through that kind of torture. Um, there's still time. But <laughs> there, is, there is still time. If this whole podcasting thing doesn't work out, there is still time. Um, we have a pack show this week. We are excited to be back after a little bit of a break, but we've got a pack show. We're going to start with a check-in on um, the latest on the healthcare fight in Washington D.C. Surprise! Um, yeah, <laughs> healthcare's know, we're, back. We're, we're we're playing the yeah, healthcare is back, and so are Greatest we. Greatest hits. <laughs> <laughs> Always playing the hits. Um, and then we're actually really excited. We have the first major policy proposal from a candidate for governor that we're going to be discussing. We're going to be discussing uh, Stacey Abrams' proposal for how to increase uh, green and other alternative alternative energy jobs in the state of Georgia. For our third topic this week, we are going to discuss the two races coming up in um, the in two of the three House districts that make up the Athens area in the State House, this is districts 117 and 119. Both Regina Quick and Chuck Williams are leaving the House, and so there's going to be two new representatives for Athens to join our good friend Spencer Fry in the Athens delegation in the House. Um, and then for our final topic this week, we're going to take a, a peek at civil asset forfeiture. It's a it's an issue that is going to be on deck for the legislature probably in 2018. And it's something that I'm not sure that a lot of people know about. But when you think about it, it's kind of absurd on constitutional and sort of rights grounds. Um, so we got a packed show this week, but we kind of want to start with something kind of funny. Um, before we're recording this on Monday night. And right before we started recording, we got a press release from Michael Williams. He's one of the Republican candidates for governor. And he said that he is organizing a protest at River Ridge High School in Cherokee County over uh, an incident that happened at the school where a teacher made kids wearing shirts that said Make America Great Again on them. Um, the teacher made the students turn those shirts inside out. Um, and he has quite the press release on this. He's comparing it to, wait for it. Antifa. Yes, he's actually blaming, he's actually comparing this whole incident at the school to Antifa. Uh, the, I guess they're, I don't know if they're, it's right to call them alt-left. They're kind of a fringe group that has been uh, fighting Nazis and extreme right-wing uh, politics uh, around the world and, and here in the United States. It's just a really weird thing that's going on. Williams is going to lead a protest at a high school of a teacher. Uh, Luke, did you guys see this? What <laughs> What is going on? Well, I, I saw your uh, your tweet about it with the Antica. So, yeah. Uh, Michael Williams, in my opinion, is following... A assumption from the Trump strategy, which is all press is good press. And so, you know, there's no such thing as bad news. And I'm just going to try to get in the news as much as possible, which I would think, you know, for casual observers may in some ways be successful because like most people probably know who Casey Cagle is, but like he's, 
Michael Williams, I feel like, is in the news more than Brian Kemp or Hunter Hill or any of the other Republican candidates. So in that sense, he might be trying to, you know, suck up some of the oxygen by doing doing these kinds of things. Yeah, I think it's easy to try to write off this kind of stuff, as many have done with Trump in the past. But, you know, get outside of our kind of political bubble and remember why Trump was successful in a lot of ways. And it's a similar strategy here. Like you said, get in the news as much as possible. People are going to pay attention. And this is stuff that riles people up. So, you know, do a protest, I guess, Michael Williams. I mean, I'm not really a... I usually just kind of write it off. But like I said, (laughs) probably need to get outside that political bubble and think about what it might mean for people that are just watching the, the nightly news. So that being said, it's really stupid. Like, I mean, I think so too. Like, but. Yeah, it's like that, that, that on both sides. Like the whole, the whole controversy is stupid. Um, you know, at this point, "Make America Great Again" is, you know, a slogan, a presidential slogan. Just like you know, it's "Morning in America." So, like, I, I think all sides are overreacting on that one. And also, I think this is a great sign of like how words enter the lexicon and people don't really know what they mean because like Antifa means a lot of different things to a lot of different people because, you know, obviously the origin is just anti-fascist. So it's like on that front, yeah, I mean, I am anti-fascist. I don't like fascists, but, you know, it's come uh, in right wing circles to mean a very specific group of, you know, so-called violent people on the left, whereas, you know, I see a bunch of people on the left use it and not that way. So it's just like... It's just stupid. The whole thing's stupid. Well, I grew up in Cherokee County, and uh, my best friend in high school was the leader of the Young Democrats at Etowah High School in Cherokee County. And um, when we were in high school, she put on a screening of Inconvenient Truth, the the climate change film that Al Gore made back in you know 2006 or whatever. Um, and they had scheduled to do it during a school day or like after a school day or something like that. And then school was canceled that day because of snow in Georgia. So I'm really, I'm not concerned, or at least not as concerned as Michael Williams is about the liberal hordes descending on Cherokee County. That's the latest update on the Michael Williams campaign. Um, so now that we've set that aside, uh, we, we can get And he's to proving something. his campaign strategy successful since he's the first one we talked about. He is, yeah. Um, let's get to something a little bit more serious uh, here in Washington, you know, as we talked about before, there has been this Republican effort to repeal and replace Obamacare. Uh, in July, I maybe prematurely pronounced the repeal and replace of Obamacare dead uh, because the Republicans had failed on three different proposals to repeal President Obama's signature legislative achievement. There is a fourth and probably final proposal that is going through in the Senate right now. This is a proposal sponsored by Senators Bill Cassidy of Louisiana and Lindsey Graham of South Carolina. Um, and we just wanted to give you a quick check in on this just because the you know the storyline is very much very similar to what it has been as we discussed this issue before. Um, this proposal by Cassidy and Graham has the same har- harmful consequences as previous ACA repeal bills. Millions would lose coverage. The Medicaid program would be drastically restructured and cut. And protections for people with pre-existing conditions would be eliminated or weakened. And for those left in the individual market, in the health insurance markets, their out-of-pocket costs are probably going to go up. It has a somewhat unique structure compared to some of the previous repeal proposals that we've talked about. 
it eliminates the tax credits that people get for the purchase of health insurance, and it eliminates the extra money that states get if they expand their Medicaid program. And instead, it replaces with replaces it with what is essentially a block grant for all of your health care spending that states get. And this goes to the states without basically any requirements on how states are going to spend that money. So there is no requirement that this money be fund be used to fund coverage, health insurance coverage for low income people, um, as is the policy under current law. But the weird thing about this proposal is that this block grant funding that is basically, you know, Bill Cassidy and Lindsey Graham pitch it as if you like your Obamacare, you can keep your Obamacare, you can do what you want with this money. That block grant completely goes away in 2026. Um, and it still has some of the same harmful cuts to the Medicaid program that we've discussed before. Um, and then finally, on process, this is following very much the same process like we discussed before in July. There is no CBO score yet on this bill. Um, the reporting from Monday suggests that there is there would be a preliminary estimate from the CBO, uh, but they won't have time to estimate the full impact of the bill. Um, there is a hearing scheduled on the bill that I saw tonight, but it is not. Uh, this is not something that's been done through the bipartisan regular order process that John McCain, senator from Arizona, asked for when he voted down previous Republican repeal proposals. And so just to kind of start things off, it is important to note that it is time, you know, if you are somebody who benefits from the ACA, who wants to see the ACA continue, it is definitely time to start calling your member of Congress again. Um, And it's also worth noting that this is one of many fights that are going on around protecting, defending, and and preserving the ACA going forward. Um, There's also going to be fights around proposals for waivers that states can take to change their Medicaid program. There's also a fight over stabilizing the law. And then there's a series of sabotage maneuvers that the Trump administration has taken since they've come into office. Um, So, you know, you might have seen in the news that Bernie Sanders introduced a Medicare for all proposal, and it's kind of trying to shift the healthcare debate in a different direction. I mean, I know some folks are ready to move on. Uh, but this, you know, the the immediate task of defense of the ACA in the face of bad policy that, at least in my opinion, doesn't meet liberal or conservative goals, that is sort of the thing that, that people need to focus on right now. Um, guys, did you see this kind of resurface in the news? And, and what did you think? Yeah, I did. And I mean, I'm not surprised because this has been such a big goal for them to destroy Medicaid. I mean, you know, destroying Medicaid in a real way has been a goal for them since uh, it was introduced in the 60s uh, under the Johnson administration. So it's not really surprising that they haven't given up on that. However, at this point with this effort, I'm kind of in the camp of I'll believe it when I see it because they've seemed to have a lot of trouble getting to a final package that people would actually agree on. And the fact that this one is pretty substantially different than the ones that we were seeing earlier in the year kind of makes me think that uh, while... A lot of uh, Republicans would find a hard time to say that they don't suppress it. In, uh, I mean, sorry, they don't. They have a hard time saying they don't support it when it actually gets through the process in time. I mean, it's you know, again, we're recording this on Monday. It's the 18th. I mean, they don't have a whole lot of time to get this through. And I imagine if they somehow magically pass this package unadulterated, the House would never do that, and the House would probably find some way to make it significantly harsher and i don't know if that would pass the senate uh coming back around so i just don't think they have the time 
to do it with you know under budget reconciliation i mean i think you know again we're talking about the senate doing this and i I think the biggest point like you said is logistically speaking there's probably not going to be enough to make this happen and if it did getting back to the house you know i I think they're still going to go back to kind of what they had done before and you know i don't think the senate's gonna gonna go for that i mean politically speaking i think the the mccain issue here is interesting looking at the popularity i guess if you want to call it that from his his maverick moment i guess um you know voting down um the previous the previous go at this you know and he had tied that to his the governor's endorsement of it which on this one from what i've seen is that the the governor has endorsed it here but mccain said he's still undecided but kind of views that endorsement as a positive thing i don't know i think the politics would be interesting for him and if he's thinking about you know, legacy at this point and what it means. His last major vote before this was um, destroying the the repeal and replace effort, and now he's got to kind of have another go at it. And what does he do going forward? Well, that's a very minor thing in the grand scheme of all the healthcare stuff, but interesting nonetheless. And what it potentially does for for his vote. Um, you know, looking at it that way. Yeah, it's going to be a tight timetable to see whether or not they they end up getting this thing done because of the budget reconciliation process, which just to shorten it up for you guys is basically a, a rules loophole that allows them to pass the proposal through the U.S. Senate without getting the 60 vote threshold that most legislation gets. Um, so, so that's why the timetable, which is through the end of the current fiscal year through September 31st, 30th, 31st, I don't know how many days are in September, but through the end of the month, that is the the timetable that they're working with. So this is going to be, you know, a, a tight turnaround for them. And we'll be interesting to see. We'll definitely revisit this issue if there's if there's more on it. But if you're following this issue, if you're someone who would call your member of Congress, this is the time to do that. Um, but with that, we'll move on to our first big topic this week. Um, so we have the first major proposal from a gubernatorial candidate, and this comes from Stacey Abrams. She's one of the Democratic candidates for governor. Um, and she laid out what is the first of, of what she says are, are several economic proposals. This is a proposal where she describes goals in which, where she describes goals for adding between 25,000 and 45,000 advanced energy jobs in manufacturing, installation, construction, coding, and operations. Um, These are the kinds of jobs that are similar to jobs that have been lost in the state and and in other states as the U.S. economy has changed over the last 50 years. She intends to see this through by generating job growth in these these industries and and training and retraining workers through um, some of the existing worker training programs that we have in partnership with your technical colleges and universities. And then in addition to the workforce development angle on this, she wants to take action in state government to, um, you know, basically make Georgia a greener state government through extending the goals of the Georgia Energy Challenge, um, adding to but the facilities that would be improved in terms of their energy consumption and extending the deadline beyond 2020 to do things like updating building codes around the state, to do things like examining the the fleet of state vehicles that you know do various things for state government and, and finding out if there are efficiency re- improvements there, and then to do things in coordination with local governments, including 
supporting local leaders on issues of solar installation, property assessment, um, and energy efficiency ordinances, and to work with communities to do things like accelerating solar permitting and allowing community solar access. So let's just start broadly with uh, with you, Luke. This is the first major proposal of this campaign, um, and it's one that focuses specifically on jobs in the economy and on green energy. Um, so what do you think of the the tone that uh, Stacey Abrams is setting with this first proposal? Well, I think it's uh, pretty interesting to me that this is the first proposal that we're seeing, especially on the Democratic side, since so many people were expecting this to be a battle on hope, since that was where there was a lot of uh, disagreements in the past between uh, the Democratic candidates and between the two Stacys. There have been a lot of real differences. And so the fact that she's come out with a green jobs plan, which is obviously something that would interest progressive voters, I, I think it... Uh, shows that she's pretty much sticking to the strategy that she laid out uh, from the beginning is that she's trying to get progressive voters behind her. And, you know, as we've discussed before on here, um, from what I've seen, that's been pretty successful, that a lot of the people that I saw that were strong supporters of Bernie Sanders are strong supporters of Stacey Abrams. So really, I think this is a interesting move, but in a lot of ways should have been productive predictable. That being said, um, it's nice to see this amount of detail and specificity from a gubernatorial campaign this early in the cycle. And so I'm hoping that, uh, you know, we can see some more of this stuff and goes without saying, we'd like to see similar plans from other candidates and be able to talk about them on the show. Yeah. To just, uh, jump off from that. I do think, you know, it's interesting to combine the major issues in the first major policy proposal is a, is a jobs issue. Um, which obviously is something that you know has been talked about on the national scale and on a Georgia scale. And what do we do with you know trying to create more jobs and keep the economy moving, especially in this manufacturing sector? Basically, um, you know, obviously the, a lot of the talk after the national election was what was the white working class doing, and it's been obviously part of the the Georgia discussion is is you know kind of what do we do with these people who were working in manufacturing jobs that may get phased out due to automation and things like that. And, you know, where do we bring them into the fold as we move forward? And it's obviously a logical extension of that to look at, you know, what's the future in that industry and green, you know, uh, renewable energy, sustainable energy jobs is a smart way to try to capture both of those things and move Georgia in the right direction that, you know, putting this out there first, like Luke said, and not only, um, you know, is going to bring in the the progressive and left wing that this is renewable energy jobs, green jobs, which is obviously going to check that box. But it's also looking at jobs and what we can do to spur the economy and give incentives incentives for work training and get companies in here to start working in these uh, this industry as well. So, I mean, I think it's a it's a smart proposal to to jump right off the bat to show that you know we're working kind of both ends here without you know, alienating either side. So yeah, I'd like to see more of this from, from not only Abrams, you know, it's, it's great to see something detailed this early and hopefully we can see more from, you know, Stacey Evans as well. And then the Republican candidates that will likely jump in as well. Yeah. I think this gives us a good window into sort of how Stacey Abrams thinks about policy. Um, I was struck by the fact that there are both new policy mechanisms here. There's the establishment of a Georgia green bank, which is a low interest loan program, where the state is going to contribute 
40 million dollars to spur, you know, private investment to help companies that would enter into the green jobs economy to help them find private capital financing. Um, this is a, a strategy that it wouldn't be all that surprising if if a Republican had proposed this, but it you know it, it I think addresses an important issue of of industry building in the state that goes beyond the strategy that the state has used previously when they've typically used just sort of tax break credits um, to lure outside businesses to the state. You know we we kind of laughed a little bit at the the yacht repair tax credit that was passed this last legislative session, but that was a similar goal. Um, this is just a more direct investment and and places the state in a central role of helping new companies and, and existing companies access financing to expand this industry in Georgia and create jobs for people who would work in these industries. But there are also policy mechanisms that use basically existing strategies that the state has. There's a lot of focus on workforce development using the programs that are already there in our technical colleges and our universities. She notes that they will uh, work with those those institutions to build new training programs that will help prepare workers for this economy. Um, there's always there's or for quite a while there's been a focus on career pathways these are basically top to bottom education infrastructures that prepare people to work in fields that are in high demand um and she's notes in this plan that these career pathways are going to be prioritized for student financial assistance um and so there's there's a lot of tools you know she doesn't have to start from the very beginning on this um, there are a lot of tools that are already there that can be retooled and, and refocused into into making this industry continue to grow in the state. I was going to ask, were, were you surprised that this was the first jobs proposal that she put out? Because they, you know, they said they had a jobs plan coming out, and I was kind of surprised that they started with this, especially because while this is a very important industry, and like green energy is actually something I am very interested in and really happy to see, that people are thinking about um, ways to invest and grow that industry. You know, the proposal is, uh, you know, estimates less than 50,000 jobs. I mean, for a state as big as Georgia, that doesn't seem as huge of an impact I would think you'd want to come out with as your first thing. But maybe I'm, you know, not seeing the big picture somehow with that. I mean, to me, I think it's one of several. I mean, that's what she alludes to in the release of this proposal is that, this is specifically focused on the advanced energy sector. Um, I saw some reporting that said Georgia was the third fastest growing solar producer in the country. And I think we're eighth overall in solar production. So there is an existing market here where the state through these strategies can just supplement job growth. And so, yeah, it, it is kind of a small number when you're thinking about a few thousand jobs in a rural area. She also notes that you know, these jobs should be available across the state. And and we've seen in other areas of the state, you know, like Caterpillar is up in Athens, there's for these sort of manufacturing type of jobs, there are, you know, they can be they don't have to be located in Atlanta. So a few thousand jobs in a rural community down in, you know, Cordill or or South of Macon or something like that. Um, You know, that would be a big deal for a local economy. Um, I think the challenge there, though, is, and, you know, this is the first major proposal, so there will be, there's a lot more policy to consider in this race. 
But the challenge in supporting these jobs goes beyond just supporting an industry and goes into what other public services are going to be there in these communities. Are there, you know, is there a proposal to save uh, hospitals that have been closing across the state? Are we focusing on how to improve schools in rural areas and make sure that these career pathways exist at the high school level and, um, you know, so that you can catch these students as they come out of high schools and, and get them in this sort of workforce development track early so that, you know, they don't have to leave their hometown to come to Atlanta and then maybe go back home or maybe go somewhere else. You know, for, for students that could get into these career pathways right out of high school, it would be good to capture them then. Um, so there's a whole other, there's a whole broad infrastructure conversation around supporting industries in rural communities that needs to be had. But uh, her focus, according to this plan, is is to have this be a proposal that reaches all across the state. Yeah, I think seeing it first, and granted, Kyle, I do agree. I think there, there's got to be something more to, especially in the rural discussion, just getting jobs there. Obviously, it's going to be important, but you've got to do more, you said, with infrastructure, with healthcare systems, with education, with all those things. And that's a that's a very broad discussion to have. But as far as just the jobs plan coming out first, um, to answer your question, Luke, I mean, my opinion, I think it's I think it's politically smart to do this. I said do a jobs plan. That's a green jobs plan. That's obviously one of one of many. You know, I think, like I said, it checks a lot of potential boxes. We're talking about the jobs all across the state, we're talking about what we're doing in rural communities and not just focusing on Atlanta, which has seemingly been a goal of Abrams throughout the campaign. She's done a lot of, seemingly try to do a lot of events outside of Atlanta and get people to know who she is outside of the metro area. Um, so it's kind of trying to check that box, checking the box of this is green energy, renewable energy. Um, so we're focusing on that specifically, but also just getting down to the the bottom of the fact that people need jobs and we need to make sure we're training people for what jobs are coming in the future and not what jobs were there, you know, 10, 20 years ago. So I think it's smart because it's, it shows that they've been thinking about this and it checks a lot of those, a lot of those boxes that, that people are looking for. So I don't know. I mean, I think there's gotta be more that comes after it, but as the first big proposal, I think it's a, a smart place to start. Yeah. And the, the other thing I would say too, is kind of a larger conversation on the energy front is there, there's a lot of work that needs to be done on the energy infrastructure in the United States. It's definitely something we have not put as much thought as an investment into as we've needed to. And green energy is just like part of that. There's a lot of uh, needs for just improving the infrastructure we have. So in general, I think giving Georgia a little bit better of an energy infrastructure is probably a good idea, um, especially with all the problems we've had with Plant Vocal. <laughs> It'd be nice to have an alternative besides just uh, more nuclear plants to boost our energy supply. And I think looking at how Abrams has, you know, what's been talked about with Abrams' campaign is that it's been very national, um, kind of talking, looking at national issues, a lot of national money, things like that. So to bring it down to a local level and look at jobs within the state of Georgia and how do we increase this kind of stuff within the state of Georgia, within the communities, you know, it's likely intentional on her part too, to try to bring this back and know that she is about the state. It's not just about national intentions and national um, money and things, because this is a local issue that is going to be focused here. Obviously, it's still something that could apply in a lot of other states, but, you know, we're not trying to 
co-opt a national issue entirely and make it work for Georgia. This is something that's important to Georgia, given the history. So The other thing that's interesting in terms of the policy and, and how you accomplish these goals is there's an entire section on state and local coordination. And I can't remember if we talked about this before. I know we've talked about it offline on the show that I've noticed at times there's a pretty adversarial relationship between the state government and local governments. And I think a lot of it is rooted in the fact that you know, we uh, across the board, we largely have governments at the state level and at the local level that are are fairly averse to raising revenue through taxes. And I think part of what goes on, particularly when you look at, you know, teacher salaries, law enforcement salaries, and, and some of the sort of logistical challenges of state and local coordination on this is that there's money that needs to be invested in something and both the state government and local governments are wanting to pass the buck on who's the one that has to raise the taxes here. Um, and, uh, Governor Abrams would have a pretty different philosophy on taxes, I think, than than your standard Republican and, and definitely a lot of different of a philosophy than Republicans like Michael Williams and Hunter Hill who want to eliminate the income tax. Um, but it'll be interesting to see how her administration, should it come to pass, how it addresses this state and local coordination issue. Um, you know, obviously, there's sort of the the nuts and bolts of good government doing things like technical assistance and and working hand in hand and and convening local government officials, putting this on top of the agenda to do things like helping communities enact energy efficient ordinances or accelerating solar permitting, doing things that would allow people, you know, just individuals or, uh, you know, small businesses access potential savings through energy efficiency by, for instance, putting a solar panel on the roof or, or upgrading some sort of infrastructure in their house, like, you know, smart thermostats and things like that. But that, you know, that requires a skill set of working with local officials that is not always been easy for other governors. Um, and it's not always been easy for levels of government to get along to so, sometimes I feel like the Republicans and, and conservatives in state and local government fight more than the Democrats and the Republicans do at the state level. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see how that part of the proposal plays out and in how much of her progress on that issue uh, would depend on state and local coordination. I think coordination between those things is always difficult, and I think in hindsight it'll always be what separates you know, good governors or presidents from, from bad ones in some ways when you're looking at the policies that require this kind of coordination. But I think especially for, for governors looking at local coordination, you know, if they're a mayor, they never want to give up their power and allow the person above them to, you know, rule over them in some way. You know, we just kind of very quickly take on that, you know, institutional pride where I'm in this mayor's office and I don't want anyone to come out of my turf and do anything. But, you know, if they ever become governor, they'll be telling the mayors what they should be doing. And, you know, I don't know how you ever get past that. But ideally, that's with a, a good leader who can start to try to bring people together for, you know, what's better for the state and for their local communities and set the pride aside but yeah then that's hard to evaluate on the front end i mean <laughs> you don't know until you get into that position and actually start doing it so the last thing that i would note you know part of what 
needs to happen to sort of expand the use of solar in the state is um, to allow homes to upgrade their energy efficiency technology, whether it is through smart thermostats or having a, a solar panel on your roof. And this plan, I think, does a pretty good job of thinking about how you expand access to those things to homeowners by allowing them to potentially finance a, you know, a big improvement in their house by, you know, the construction and, and you know, the building and installing of a solar panel on their roof or something like that. There's financing options there that would allow people to basically pay off that investment slowly but surely. And it would increase the value of their home. It would make their house more energy efficient. And those are all great things. I, I you know, there's nothing like partisan about that or ideological. I, I think it's just sort of a, you know, how do you expand the use of solar um, and other alternative energy options? You know, it's just a nuts and bolts issue. Um, but missing from this, and I think missing from the solar conversation broadly, at least as I've seen it, is how do you pass along those benefits to people who don't own homes, to people who rent? You know, if you install a solar panel on your on the roof of like an apartment building and it raises the value, the property value of the apartments, um, you know, maybe a person renting in that apartment building might see lower energy bills, but are they going to have to pay higher rent because the the property is assessed at a higher value? Um, you know, what, what kinds of impacts are going to allow low and moderate income people to access the benefits of these energy savings if they aren't homeowners that can benefit through the value of the property that they own? Um, I think that is something, you know, that that's a real deep issue in this. Um, but I think it is something to look for in terms of how do you make the benefits of a green energy economy accessible beyond people who own their homes and people who own businesses who can take advantage of these big capital projects. Um, and so I think that's something that I'm looking forward to, uh, you know, as this proposal develops, as it gets discussed on the campaign trail, and then potentially as a governor Abrams tries to implement these ideas, um, I'll be looking forward to that to see how that plays out. But with that, I think we'll move on to our next topic this week. Uh, let's dive into a little bit of politics. There is, you know, we're, we're back in campaign season all of a sudden. Um, there are two open house seats, state house seats in the Athens area. These are in districts 117 and 119. Both Regina Quick and Chuck Williams are leaving the legislature to take different jobs. Regina Quick was appointed to a judgeship and Chuck Williams was appointed to director of the Georgia Forestry Commission. Okay. Yes. I'm glad you finished that because I started that sentence yes. and didn't know how it was going to end. <laughs> yes. Um, and so this is going to create two open house seats. And so, Luke, you're you're pretty close to this. You're living in Athens. Um, what are we looking forward to? When is this election and, and who is running? Well, I, what I'd like to, to start with is just kind of how sudden this all was, because basically there was a lot of rumors going around that uh, Representative Quick was going to be appointed to a judgeship. And so with that, the candidates sort of geared up way earlier than they usually do. And you had Houston Gaines, who is um, one of the Republicans running in 117, raised $62,000 in like two weeks. And you had a lot of candidates already announcing, which, and it's pretty early in the cycle for that. 
Um, but there really hadn't been much rumors about Chuck Williams and 119. And so when that happened too, it just sort of seemed like Athens is going to be in a perpetual election season since we also have our municipal elections in May of 27, uh, 2018. So we're basically going to just be in a constant campaign season uh, from here on until uh, November of 2018. Um, that all being said, uh, I think the most interesting new development we have in this is that uh, one of the first people to announce that he was actually running against Virginia Quick was former state representative Doug McKillop, who had been a Democrat but uh, switched parties back around to, uh, 2010. And he uh, did not qualify, and he said he he said uh, he was going to run in eighteen, not seventeen, and so we'll see. So Wait, really, that, I didn't even know that. Yeah, yeah. I so Doug McKillop, Doug McKillop did not like the accelerated accelerated time, and seemed like he, uh, yeah, was not willing to run in a special. So um, that's pretty interesting. Um, and you know, I've heard rumors of some other candidates considering running, uh, in the 18 cycle, kind of like, like they're going to wait and see how this special goes and then they'll run, uh, in 18. So, yeah, I mean, I really feel sorry for whoever wins either of these races because they're probably going to immediately have challengers that might be different people because, you know, they're going to, the election's in November, so they are going to get seated before the new legislative session, which I think is great. That way, you know, Athens isn't down two reps. I mean, that would be really bad. So that's, you know, great. Um, But uh, I feel sorry for whoever it is because they're almost immediately going to have... uh, another race on their hands because they're gonna have to qualify again in March and, you know, have primaries in May and then election in November as to who's running. Uh, I'll hit the highlights. Um, there are six candidates in total. I think for between these two, uh, seats, we have, uh, the first candidate I mentioned earlier, Houston Gaines, who, uh, actually ran, uh, Nancy Denson's campaign, which kind of uh, leads us some some controversy. I think we're going to get into in a minute, but we'll we'll put a pause in there. Uh, then we also have uh, the Democrat Deborah Gonzalez running in one one seven. I know she is a lawyer um, and she is a uh, Hispanic woman, so that is a uh, exciting thing. A lot of people are getting excited by about her candidacy. Um, and then we also have in one one nine we have. Uh, a funeral director. His name is uh, Tom Lorg. A home builder named Marcus Wigower, I think. And then a businessman named Stephen Strickland. And then there's a software developer named Jonathan Wallace, who is the sole Democrat in that race. So, conveniently for Democrats, uh, both of these races only have one Democrat candidate, so we can kind of already go ahead and mobilize and start getting behind these candidates and trying to support their their bids while the Republicans fight among themselves. So that is uh, the lowdown on that race, and that is all the candidates that will be in there because the qualifying period is over. So we know for a fact like these are the final folks that are going to be in the race. And just like the John Ossoff race, it always comes back, just like in District 6, it is a... Uh, jungle primary, um, which will not affect 117 since it's only two candidates, but with uh, 119 since there's three Republicans and one Democrat, maybe something will happen there. So you know it'll be it'll be interesting um, to see uh, and to you know to take your role, uh, Kyle. I'm going to now ask Austin. Austin, talk about the numbers because I know you and I have talked about both of these districts in great detail, and there's some opportunities there. 
Yeah, definitely. I think, you know, both of these districts are, you know, should be on the radar for for Democrats looking in 2018. And it's kind of nice that we get the opportunity here in 2017 to see how they do. Um, you know, I think these will tell us a little bit more than the Georgia 6 race. Um, you're not going to have all that national pressure on everything. It'll be much more localized and we kind of see what what the Democrats can do now and kind of get an idea of what, what 2018 may look like. Obviously, there's still special elections and jungle primaries and things like that. So, you know, it's hard to take everything from this, but it's an interesting, interesting thing to look at. Um, you know, kind of looking at the, the history of these, you know, there have definitely been Republican districts. Looking just back at, at 2016, Clinton only got about 46% of the vote in, in 117, and in 119 got just under 44%. So we're not out of the realm of possibility here. Um, those are both about an average of a three-point gain from what Obama got in those districts in 2012. So obviously going the right direction, but you've got to be careful with that, right? Because we're it's the, the Trump effect there, of course. Just for reference, the, the Barksdale numbers are both below 40% in those districts. Maybe not the best example, given the way the campaign and everything was run, but still something to to consider. So, I mean, obviously, both of these districts are, are trending in, you know, the right direction for, for Democrats. Um, if you kind of keep that, that trend going, these are definite should be definite toss-up districts if we have, you know, quality Democrats running. Unfortunately, I don't know a ton about either of these candidates and how they're going to run, and we'll learn more as we we go on and get to know them and get to know how their campaigns are going. Um, But these should be, you know, toss-ups should be competitive if the Democrats really want to have a chance in in 2018 to make make some waves. So I think, uh, you know, like we said, these are are heading in the right direction and should be competitive if we have quality Democrats. Um, but we don't really know how a Democrat would have fared on a local level. Um, you know, the past couple cycles haven't had, you know, a competitive race here. So the Democrats have just kind of been handing it to the Republicans. So it'll be nice to see what we can do. Um, you know, looking at kind of the demographics of the districts, both are definitely very white districts, um, but a good percentage, obviously, with you know, white with um, college degrees. So that changes things a little bit. But, um, you know, we're talking, I think, in 117, um, it's about 70% white. In 119, I think it's about 75% white. So, you know, the Democrats are definitely going to have to look at those, um, you know, white with degree holders and see what can be can be won there. Um, but I think overall, uh, these should be toss-ups. The way that they're trending, the way that they're going... It should be competitive, um, especially in a special election. If we have the mobilization there, um, which it sounds like people are getting excited about it, and given that they're special elections, there's going to be a lot more research that can go Athens way rather than you know maybe being stuck in Atlanta or other places. So, you know, ideally for the Democrats, it's competitive, it's a toss-up, and you know we can win one or the other. I think 117 is more likely to be to be closer given the history and given the demographics there, but. Um, you know, if the Democrats win both of them, I think that's a that's a pretty strong sign. No guarantees, obviously, on either of them. I think it'd be a victory if the Democrats got got close, and if they did win, then it's you know good momentum for them going into going into twenty eighteen. Yeah, and the other thing I'd say that I'm excited about, and uh, you know, it's unfortunate this has to be the bar, but neither one of these seats was contested by a Democrat back in twenty sixteen. So the fact that 
both of these races actually have a Democrat in them is not a given. You know, like that's actually a accomplishment on its own that we actually are being able to contest these races. So I'm hoping um, that that is a trend that will continue across the state because I know back in 2016, even if we've won every single race that had a Democrat in it, uh, we would not have been able to take back the state house or the state senate. And that is frankly unacceptable. So I'm happy that we are at least showing a will to fight. And even if we can't win these districts this cycle, if we get out there and start spreading the Democratic message, I think it will really set us up in the future to have a campaign or a candidate that will be successful in these districts. Because unfortunately for a lot of the state, they just have not been in contact with a Democratic candidate. You know, they they don't know what the difference between a Democrat and Republican actually is. And, you know, it's not like what Fox News or the Republican candidates that go unopposed tell you they are. So I think that is a really, really important thing uh, to see in this race. And I think uh, regardless, we have a lot to a lot of work to do, but it also is a great opportunity and we are already improving upon our past performance. Yeah, I think, you know, obviously at some point the Democrats want to win a special election in in Georgia, but... Um, or anywhere. Yeah, or anywhere. <laughs> but, you know, for us Georgia Democrats, um, you know, we'd like to, to have one of those victories. But it will be important to look at how we can improve. You know, I think uh, Christine Trebish, you know, I think she improved three points, three, four points on what Clinton got in the district. And that was in the, the final special, not attached to the Georgia 6 race. Um, you know, if these candidates can do similar things i mean that basically wins 117 it's pretty close yeah i mean that's pretty close and and that's definite toss-up and that's something that you know you're looking at these candidates can do that these districts where you know clinton was sitting at you know 45 percent and lower you know you give a couple point push to that and i mean you're in definite toss-up range you go and knock on more doors and you go and run a better campaign there's definite opportunity especially for you know, potentially Republicans that have been complacent because the Democrats haven't been competing in any of these places. So sadly, yeah, it is a victory that we have people competing in, you know, what should be toss up districts. But, you know, we'll take that and, you know, turn it into some more stuff. But yeah, I mean, I think no matter what, it's always important to look at what the difference is. How much did we improve? And where did we improve? And, you know, if we keep doing that and make those changes in 2017, and then you know, turn that into 2018, you know, Democrats can, can really start doing something. So I'm going to seal back my moderator duties here because I clearly didn't prepare for this topic, but uh, Luke, local Athens politics kind of jumped back into this. Uh, If you're familiar with Athens politics, you kind of know that that's kind of its own thing that goes on in that town. Um, So what, what's going on and, and how does this tie into some of the local politics in Athens? Right. Well, as I mentioned earlier, um, Houston Gaines, who is a Republican and was SGA president at UGA, kind of came onto the political scene when he managed Nancy Denson's 2014 mayoral campaign against Tim Denson. And uh, a lot of people were pretty shocked to see that Nancy Denson not only had donated to Houston, but uh, was actually going to host a fundraiser for him. And so because of that, uh, the Clark County Democratic Executive Committee has moved to remove her 
from the uh, the the county committee because there's a limited number of seats on the county committee per commission district. I, th- I believe there are seven, and then there's three alternates. And so she currently is one of those seat holders, and so they are uh, going to vote to remove her from that position because of her support of Houston Gaines, which, as far as I'm aware, in my understanding of the bylaws, is pretty much like required it's almost not even a choice it's like it basically says in the in the bylaws if you support a candidate of a different party than the democratic party then like you can't be on the committee so is this a formality or are people upset with her for jumping behind Gaines campaign yeah, and, th- and this is now purely luke boggs's opinion and just the things that i've seen is that over the years uh, Democrats in Athens have been very frustrated with Nancy Denson because she is a Democrat of a different era and tends to, you know, support more conservative positions and is a more in line with the business community than the progressive community in Athens. And due to that, she's upset folks a lot. You know, a, a solid example is the Athens Civil Rights Commission or committee issue and she drug her feet on that pretty hard and it was you know it took a lot of effort and convincing for uh that to get on the agenda and you know this is this is just i think at at the end of the day this is probably just like the final straw that this is just the you know the last thing that people could stand i don't know if it will ultimately be successful i imagine it will just due to the bylaws i mean uh, you know again it's just like that's pretty cut and dry uh you know denson's argument mayor denson's argument that uh it's a technically a nonpartisan race because of the jungle primary uh does not hold water for me (laughs) and i don't think anyone else so we will see what happens but i mean the executive committee already voted on it and it's going to go before the full committee at their next meeting so we will see there uh, what happens, which I'm a member of, by the way. So uh, I, I've spoiler on which way I would vote on that issue. Oh, Athens politics. You could make a whole podcast about that. And we should, um, and we probably will before the uh, municipal races are over. Uh, but with that, I think we'll leave that topic there and move on to our final topic of the week. Um, this is not going to be the only time that we talk about this topic, but we just kind of wanted to jump into this. Um, you know, particularly because this is an issue that may be addressed in the legislature next year. Um, so our final topic is going to be a discussion on civil asset forfeiture. And this, to me, is worth discussing just because from sort of your, you know, just best guess about what you know about the justice system and how it works, um, this practice is kind of absurd. So did you know that you could be pulled over or or have some sort of interaction with police and have your property taken from you on suspicion that your property is involved in some sort of civil crime and that you could lose access to that property and have to fight back for it in the justice system without being charged without being charged or convicted with some sort of criminal offense that is what civil asset forfeiture is, and that is what we're going to talk about for our final topic. Um, so this is an interesting issue in Georgia because Georgia, like a lot of states, has these civil asset forfeiture laws that basically allow you to have your property taken without being charged for a crime, without being convicted. 
Um, and it is a way in which local police departments can find sort of alternative financing mechanisms for some of the operations of their department. Sort of the underlying thing about what's going on here is that this is a practice that sort of became popular in the fight against drug trafficking and uh, police officers and police officer associations that support this practice say that this is one of the most effective tools that they have in dealing with criminals who make money from criminal activity. Um, that is actually a position taken by Putnam County Sheriff Howard Sills. He he gave that quote to uh, WABE in an interview that we'll link to in our show notes. Um but this is a really controversial topic in the legal community and, and really sort of goes against what is probably your first hunch about the justice system and how it works. Um, so, Austin, we'll start with you. What do you think of civil asset forfeiture and why is this like even legal? Yeah, I mean, I think just right off the bat, I mean, my personal opinion is I think civil asset forfeiture has definitely been been abused. Um there is a, a purpose for it, and the proponents will talk about that, that sometimes civil asset forfeiture is the only way to ensure that criminals who either they cannot get to due to extradition laws, potentially, or other reasons, it's the only way that they can seize the money and the profits, basically, from crime. There's definitely something to that, but I think the problem is is that it just lends itself completely to abuse of the justice system and multiple parts of the justice system from both the police force to the prosecutors. Um, I mean, there's just a natural incentive for them to try to bring these civil suits that have a much lower burden. You know, you're basically talking 50% plus one. It's the same as a civil case. So if you meet that relatively low burden, you know, they can seize these goods, they can sell them off, they can seize the cash. And a lot of times it can um, pay for the budget of that department. Um, you know, back when I was in law school, I know I interned at the U.S. Attorney's Office, and their talk about forfeiture was basically that it was great because it did pay for that entire department and paid for other departments and made it easier for them to meet their budget requirements. That if there was a budget shortfall, they could just seize some more goods and sell it off and take care of it. And just that by itself, without having to prove crime or attach it to a criminal case or anything like that. I mean, it, it's an entirely separate case. And, and that by its nature just leads to um, leads to abuse of the system. So if they're unhappy that they didn't get a verdict, there's also no double jeopardy concerns here. So even if you were acquitted of a crime, you went through the entire trial and were acquitted of a crime, in most places, double jeopardy doesn't apply because it's a civil case. So the goods, you know, that are believed to have been part of whatever the acquitted crime was can still be seized. So there could be, you know, vindictive things here. And it's just such an ability for abuse that we've got to do something to to basically stop it. I mean, it's just it's a way for police departments and um, district attorney's offices and prosecutor's offices to make some extra money in a pretty easy way that most people don't even know about. Yeah, to give a little bit of a, a Georgia tie-in here and, and to talk about what's been going on in the state, um, there have been improvements to civil asset forfeiture laws in the state. And when you take a look at what 
experts on this issue talk about and, and people who advocate for civil asset forfeiture reform talk about, they sort of take what is the first step, which is improving reporting requirements for local police officers and and local units and, and sheriff's offices and things like that. Um, and, and part of that was done in a proposal, in a bill that passed, I believe it was 2015, but it, it was a few years back, which basically strengthened reporting requirements. Now, most local police offices are required to put reports up on the Carl Vincent, uh, government Institute site. That's it's a site run by university of Georgia, but these reforms to this point have fallen short of what to me is sort of the most basic and fair reform that needs to happen, which is to make sure that you have to be charged and convicted of a crime before your property can be taken from you. That is still something that is that has evaded uh, reformers to this point. Um, it's an issue that does have appeal to both conservatives and liberals. I mean, certainly if you paid attention to liberal politics and and liberal policy issues in recent years, you've seen that there is a growing distrust with how, particularly how minority communities are policed and in the in the excessive use of force from some police officers in certain instances. Um, you know, this this sort of folds into that issue because this you know, the way this is defended by police officers who support this practice, it's kind of a like a just trust us issue, that this is a an area of discretion that police officers say they need to combat drug crime and, and other crimes that may be difficult to get convictions for. Um, but this is a tool that they can use to sort of make drug crime and other crimes like this not pay. The difficulty here is that it is really hard to tell in stories that I've read, you know, individual cases of people who, you know, appear to be completely innocent and are just caught up in a system that, you know, doesn't have a lot of safeguards for people in their in their you know constitutional rights. Um, there was a story, you know, I became in- interested in this issue quite a few years back, where. I read some reporting in the AJC about a woman named Alda Gentile. um, And she was somebody, she wasn't a Georgian. She was somebody that was driving from Florida to New York to look at condos. And she was somebody who was a limo driver. And and she carried about $11,000 in cash that would be a down payment for the condo that she was looking for. Um, And she was pulled over in Camden County, Georgia, allegedly for speeding. And she was asked if she was a drug dealer. And apparently she said no, but despite this, her cash was seized and she was never charged with a crime. Um, her issue or her, her story is one that that has a shorter resolution than most uh, because she got her cash back about a week later. But, you know, she was somebody who just happened to have cash on her for, you know, a benign reason, a, a legal reason. And you know, without some legal help that I believe she got, she would have had to prove that the cash that she had, merely that because it was in her possession, she would have had to prove that her cash was innocent of a crime, not related to any kind of commission of a crime. It, it's, it is a complete flip of the concept of innocent until proven guilty. You have to prove the innocence of property, which is not something that can speak for itself. It's not something that can say you attest to the fact that it is not involved in a crime. It is it is cash or it is a car or it is other, uh, you know, property. Typically, 
not super valuable stuff. You know, this is $11,000 might be kind of an outlier, but this is four or $5,000 in cash or four or $5,000 in property or, or a car that's not worth much. And oftentimes the value of whatever property is seized is not worth the legal trouble to get that property back. And because of that, and because, you know, police officers in some of these instances appear to be, to have a lot of incentive to try to find property that they can seize. If it's not worth the cost to get it back, this is something that just ends up in their coffers and, and there's not a lot of oversight for how this stuff actually happens. Um, Luke, you know, what do you think about this practice and, and what can be done to, to improve upon the laws that we have? Well, to start off, I would agree with Austin that like, it's very clear that there's a legitimate purpose for civil asset forfeiture. So like, there's a reason to have it, but I mean, it's just like a lot of the other problems that we're having with law enforcement in the country right now. It's just like all that needs to be done is to have more training and reform. And the main thing on this though, that's different than the police brutality problem that we've been having is that there's a big incentive to find property that you can seize. And so, unfortunately, training alone is not going to be enough, and we're going to have to keep talking with our legislators to come up with a solution that regulates this better. Because, again, as you're mentioning, Kyle, I mean, it's absurd to have a system where you have to prove that your property property is legitimate, you know, that like you have a a real legitimate non-crime related reason to have a bunch of cash on you or to have a car or anything like that. And so I think this is just one of those problems that we're just going to have to keep pushing on until we can see some reform. And it also highlights something that we were talking about earlier though, is the fact that this is, coming directly from the government's unwillingness to actually invest in law enforcement and the lack of desire to raise taxes and to actually spend money on the things the government's supposed to do. And so because of that, that is why some of these departments feel driven and feel like it's necessary for them to do this and to have an aggressive program like this because they're not getting money anywhere else and that's the only way that they're supposed they they see that they can keep their departments running and that really should not be a position they should be in they should feel like this money is just like you know a cherry on top of the work they already do and that it helps them expand their operation not keep the lights on yeah no look i agree i, I think this issue about you know looking to public officials you know putting this beyond just putting blame for this beyond just police officers and looking to public officials and and the structures in which local police departments feel like they need to seize assets and and take advantage of this loophole in the law uh, because they can't get consistent funding from other sources, other government sources. I mean, public safety is something that we all benefit from. It's something that we all should should pay into. And, you know, this is you know, the role our public officials have to play. They have to make the decisions about 
allocating resources and, and prioritizing the important things. And and if they are shirking their duty to do that, then then that's where you know the public needs to hold them accountable. Um, this is an issue that I think we're going to talk about more. It's something that is probably on the legislative agenda for next year. Um, and it's something that's worth diving into even more to understand what the loopholes in Georgia's laws are and, and how those can be improved. So, so we'll work on some more content related to that. Um, but with that, I think we're going to wrap this up for today. We are excited to be back on the air and to kick off the fall uh, season, the campaign season, firing up on the governor's race and, and in other local races and special elections. Um, we are excited to be back to cover it all. Um, so with that, we will leave it there. And uh, Luke, it was great getting back together. Good to see you again, Kyle. And Austin, thanks for joining us as always. Yeah, no problem. And we will talk to you guys next week. Bye, guys. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating or a review. It really helps other people find our show. We'll be back with another episode of Peach Pod next week. Until then, take care, y'all.